Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Mike Cox, a seasoned expert with over three decades in the metals processing industry. Spanning continents from the UK to Asia, Mike's journey reflects his dedication to operational excellence. Currently, he serves as the Chief Operating Officer at West Wind Elements, Inc., a pioneering force in America's mineral independence base in Oklahoma. Additionally, Mike holds a significant position as a non-executive director at Canada Nickel Company, a front runner empowering the electrical vehicle revolution. His commitment to education and mentorship shines as a board member for the Alacrity Foundation UK, a charity fostering the next wave of tech innovators. An alumnus of MIT Sloan and the University of South Wales, Mike's extensive knowledge and leadership continue to shape the metals industry. Mike even led the first refinery to get the first to be the first UK recipient of the coveted Shingo Silver Medallion for operational excellence. That's a big deal. And I've asked Mike to join us here today to share his story and help us better understand increasing employee engagement, mineral resource, the relationship between mineral resources and tech and operational excellence. So Mike, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing, my friend? Thanks, Daryl. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, it's good to have you here. Now, before we hop into this, obviously, it's a very specialized thing that you do, not just operations. Well, I guess we talked about the Shingo, like trying to achieve the top of your field in a unique field itself. But how did you even get in to working at refineries in this industry? Do you, is this a family business? Did your dad work? In it's a bit of a long story, really. I'm from South Wales, which is an area that's renowned for its mining history. But actually, that's in really coal mining. My history, my, my career history is in is in nickel mining and refining. South Wales is also famous for it as a rich history for mineral processing, nickel, copper, zinc, and other metals as well. And not far from where I live, actually, there's a very old uh, nickel refinery, which these days is run by a company called Vale, which mm. anybody familiar with the mining industry would 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 know of. I joined that company in in 1989, actually, which which gives some clue as to my yeah. age. I'm at more at the tail tail end of my career, but yeah, I've been as I said, as you said at the beginning, over 30 years in the industry, and it began at uh, the Clydech Nickel Refinery near Swansea, South Wales, and I kind of div I grew through various levels of responsibility working there. And in doing so, quite a significant portion of the customer base is based in Asia, particularly Japan. Mm. And I was fortunate enough to visit Japan many times through the 90s and more recently, obviously. But and I guess it was in, in through those visits to world-class Japanese manufacturing plants, the likes of Panasonic, Sanyo, Sumitomo Electric Industries. These are kind of plants that I grew to look up to in terms of the way that they engaged their people and the way that they executed things on the shop floor. And in those formative years, I thought to myself, if only we could take some of the lessons that those guys have learned mm. and apply them to, to UK industry, perhaps we could actually integrate, it's an overused term, but lean manufacturing with um, mineral processing. That's the that's kind of how I got into it, how I kind of the penny dropped for me. 
that mm. we, we could really add value through engaging our people in what we're doing to really improve the performance and ultimately improve the bottom line for the organization. So what were the big things that stood out? You said do some of the things that they're doing for employment, like what? you have some examples? Yeah, I mean, it's that's it. There's lots of books written on it, but I think that it's really it's a lot of overthinking as well. It's really easy to focus on lean tools like Kanban and 5S, and these are overused words and terms that are, I think people do them blindly without really understanding why they're doing it. And what, what became apparent to me over in Asia was there was such great visual management. It, it really allowed the people... To, to to contribute to the, their particular work areas, to gain ownership of their work areas. There was also clearly great lines of communication between the shop floor, supervision mm. and management. Everyone's on the same page. And I think that uh, it was one thing applying continuous improvement, but applying it in the right areas is really important. Otherwise, you're improving areas for the sake of it that, really, that doesn't add value. So it's, re- it's really that joined up thinking between management, middle management and shop floor, I think that was like, and it, 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 you don't you don't glean this by walking around these places. You, this is something that uh, took a long time for me to figure out, I think. Yeah, so I think that was one of the main learning. And just the general engagement and commitment. And yeah, it's just great to see people taking something from their day-to-day work and really contributing and feeling as if they have contributed as well. It must be very rewarding for people. Yeah, I lived in Tokyo for three years. I actually went there for two weeks this year and then had friends come here for two weeks. Took a month off already, and uh, it's, a great, it's a great country as well. You you come back a better person, I say. <laughs> when you go yeah. to Japan, it's just such a great place. People are so, are just so polite, and it's just so civilized. Yeah, it's quite yeah. humbling, I think. Yeah, I think if the planet Earth were Middle Earth from Lord of the Rings, they would be the elves. I just feel <laughs> like oh, they have all the yeah. tech. Some of the stuff over there is like magic. Their ways are mysterious. It's it's like they yeah. live long. They've got some of the longest lives. Yeah, um, it's I a little quirky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How? Let me tell. To ask about how did that influence? Okay, continuous improvement, getting engagement of employees, clear lines of communication, full integration. Right, having not maybe a flatter company, but better integration between the levels of the company. And when? How do you translate that? Okay, you go to this experience. You go to Japan. You're learning these things. You go back to the UK. You, well, you yeah. want to achieve operational excellence. Where do you start? Where do you? Yeah, I don't think there's a textbook that you can write on it or even a really easy way about it because everyone's career paths follow different directions. It's a bit of a con, it's a bit of a convoluted journey, really. I should have gone on and given you more of a kind of how it all panned out my career, but it's maybe we stopped at the right time earlier. So having spent those years in, in the working out of the UK, if you like, getting experience not only of Japan, but there was a big influence. From, oh, yeah. from from my experiences in Japan, Europe as well. Some great companies in Europe that you can learn from, particularly Germany and Holland and those kind of locations. I found that really informative as well. But I went on to work in our corporate office in, in Toronto for a couple of years at the turn of this century. This sounds like a history lesson as well, doesn't it? But uh, okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I, I spent a couple of years there. Worked. So I, again, it's really great to understand balancing corporate culture and corporate activity and what corporate people want with working out in the field in operations. And so mm-hmm. uh, that was, again, that was a significant kind of part of my development. And then I went from there and I ended up running our Inco, as it was then, Inco's operations in Asia, in, in China, I should say. They had a bunch of joint ventures. So I ended up living in China for a couple of years. I lived in a city called Dalian in the north and latterly in Shanghai for a year as well. And we had operations in Shenyang, in Dalian, 
in, in near, near Shanghai as well. Sorry, I was traveling all over again, culturally very, very, very interesting and, yeah, and rewarding as well to understand and just to get a feel for that whole that scale of Chinese industrial growth. Right. Just by looking around you, looking at construction for one, some of which turned out to be perhaps not based on any great like supply-demand model, but that's besides <laughs> the point, really. <laughs> I, um, I saw that in also, Vietnam. I lived in Vietnam for two and a half years, and we would go through subdivision, like just ghost town subdivisions. It was it was because it was the communists, so they would decree things need to be done, yeah. oh, and they would be yeah, built, but absolutely. you have a whole subdivision <laughs> that's just empty, and no one's living there, and it's Brand yes. new. I, there was this one part of, sorry, I'll, I'll shut up in a second, but one part of Saigon, film crews would come in and do shoots there. It was, there must have been, I'm going to say 20 or more, 16, 30 foot, like a condo complexes. It was like a zombie apocalypse movie. They were just empty. They were just totally exactly. empty. Just no one there. <laughs> And the giveaway was always when you drove, when you drove past at night and there was no lights on. You think, yeah, <laughs> wait a minute, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Where was I? Yeah, yeah. And also nickel growth, demand for metals, obviously that comes with industrial growth. It was really good. It was great experience to 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 see all that as it was really taking off twenty odd years ago. And then really after that, I that was when I to cut the long story short. After that was when I returned to the to the UK, back to where I came from in the first place. Actually, at Cliddach in Swansea who not long after I returned, they became the general manager. And this was like about 2007, eight, something like that. I can't even remember now, top of my head. And that was when the company had strategic, we were in the new ownership by then. We, we, we weren't Inco anymore, we were Vale. Vale had strategic choices to make around which ref, nickel refineries um, were to stay open, if you like, or were in, in, the, in the medium term, um, and which weren't to stay open. And that was based on changes to the global flow sheet, where the metal was being mined, in what quantities, where it was being transported, where it was being refined, ultimately where it was being. So I could see that we weren't in such a great place in those days. At any rate, there was a risk, I thought, that we might become a victim of all this change, if you like. Mm. And after 100 years, I, I did feel a sort of, and I, being a long-term employee there myself, I did feel a sense of sort of paternal responsibility as well to keep the place going and also to make it flourish, to grow it, to grow the business, to make it a, a bigger volume refiner of, of nickel. So I thought to myself, you can apply capital to it, but capital was in to replace right. certain assets, to improve certain assets, but capital was in relatively short supply. You know, mining industry right. is pretty cyclical and you can't guarantee the money being available in large amounts through the whole cycle obviously yeah i really thought look we can do lots of stuff here if we just engage our people and really get our people to pull in the same direction i think we can we can reduce downtime we can improve or rather, rather reduce the rate of, of product non-conformance we can improve safety every metric across the board really if you can al align your people and getting them do getting them doing the right things to improve it and getting the right things in terms of behavior as well. Like you can add not insignificant amounts to your overall operational right. performance. And that was really, that was the sort of, that was a rather a basic high level thinking to it. But yeah, I thought to myself, I, I'd inherited a really good management team there who are all, again, this is luck. If you've got people that are all resistant to change, it makes right. things infinitely more difficult but the group that were working alongside me by the men were, were like really yeah exactly the same in their thinking we had some really good leaders there and as a group 
yeah, it took a long time, and I, I can give you the detail about how it all went as we speak. But it at the high level, after a sticky start, we got things flowing, we got things moving, and after a few years, the refinery got recognised as one of the one of the best, not not just in in the mining and mineral processing industry, but in any form of industry, and that includes service industry as well. We got recognised for our world class operational excellence. Right, I love that, and so. In trying to achieve that, was that the main goal, or that was just a sidebar? That well, was. Just- uh, it's, it's a balance, really. Ultimately, you, when you're doing these things on the hoof, you've got you you can't mess around. You can't experiment too much. You've got to keep you've got to keep your numbers, your production numbers, your cost, your numbers, your profitability, your safety performance more than anything. Particularly in an area in, in a refinery which was as highly regulated um, as the one that I was managing in those days. You've, th- those things have all got to be well, have got to be front and foremost in your in your thinking. And you've got to implement change, whether it's physical change or whether it's cultural change, with one eye on mitigating any risk that might come with it to to your to your high level financial and, and production production goals, business goals in general. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It, we, we started off. It, it was a little bit ropey at the beginning, to say the least, because we were all beginners. There was right. no. We didn't read. We did. We, okay, one one or two of our guys went did some lean education, but really we, we were just enthusiastic amateurs right. almost. <laughs> have a go, really. Oh, let's use five S. That's a good thing. Let's tidy up that area. We did really. But it wasn't deep thinking here. It was just applying some of the lean tools in the first place, and it was a little bit scattergun, and it was a little bit hit and miss in our level of success. And we were seeing what short term gains. What was your north star? What would you recommend to someone starting out or struggling? What should be the north I, I, star? Yeah, that was the point. The penny dropped after a while. That just implementing lean tools was not was not a sustainable way. They 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 flourish for a few weeks or months, but right. there was nothing Faith. holding it all together. Really, the thing was, we brought in some we brought in some consulting guys who were with us every step of the way in the early years. They were great, and it, it was really it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning: aligning our people with the overall direction that the organization wants to go in. And what we did was we sat back as a management team and identified what we wanted to achieve, what was our strategy, what was our mission. Um, it all sounds a bit, how can I say this? A lot, you hear this a lot about mission statements, but it actually came to life. This is what we're trying to achieve. And behind that, what are the kind of, we, we didn't call them key performance indicators. We called them something else because we didn't want to sound too, what's the word for it? You know, words like lean and KPI were a little bit, they don't really capture the imagination. So we were trying to use our own language around these things. But ultimately, what were the key drivers for the organization? What what were we trying to achieve? What were the business metrics? And we, I, I held goodness knows how many presentations with the workforce in its entirety or by department or by sort of natural work groups, spoke to them time and time again, drilling in this message about this is what we're trying to achieve. This is what, and behind that, this is what the organization needs to do to achieve that. And over time, we drilled it down to the department level, to the work group level, and to the individual as well. Each group had their own sort of strategic mission, if you like. They understood where the refinery was going. But beyond that, they also understood what they could do to contribute, both as a group and at the individual level, because it's no good speaking to people and say, you did a good job last month because we didn't have any accidents last month. Because it's not really that, it's not really empowering. You really need to, you really need to focus on what an individual can do to to contribute to that. Oh, it really, much of it depends upon the role of the supervisor in all of this as well. Because especially for the shift workers, they don't see management very often. 
when they work in 12-hour shifts. And it was really important that we engage those shift workers to really act as more than just a proxy for management, to, yeah. to physically work on the implementation as well, these shift shift supervisors, shift managers and whatnot. When I used to, there was a heck of a lot of management walkabout and it's really easy to walk around the refinery and look at the paint on the pipes and say everything looks really pretty here. And But I've, to me, it's really about engaging in meaningful conversations with everybody. For, to me, everyone's as important, whether it be the janitor or the packing guys yep. or the you know, roll room guys up to production managers and whatnot. Everyone's, there's no differentiation in my book. Speak to them all. And it's really easy to hold conversations with those guys about like, offbeat stuff like did you see the football last night and how you know how, how's your tomato crop coming along or right. those kind of really boring but easy to have conversations but they're not they don't really get you anywhere but if you could if you can ask questions to them do you see your supervisor very often what kind of conversations do you have do you know what direction this organization is going in what are our strategic objectives do you know how you can contribute if, if they look at you with that glazed expression you probably, you need to go back and, and revisit your strategic deployment, mm, I would say. Mm, <laughs> uh, whereas if you're getting real positive engagement that everyone's, oh, yeah, I get it. And this is how, this is my place. This is how I fit into the organization. It's really important. They, you, you can understand then that the improvement work that they're doing is around the key areas that they need to be improving on, not just right. some stuff that doesn't do anything. You can spend weeks and months improving asset A, but if it's not the refinery bottleneck or if it's not really an important asset in the scheme of things, you wasted your time. Right, right, so, um, right. It's that you kind a, of a line. You said a key thing there too, that bottlenecks, focusing on the bottlenecks. That was a key detail. Yeah. Can you speak yeah. to that a little bit? Yeah, so it, again, um, everyone's got their own theory of the bottleneck. It took a, in, in this particular refinery we eventually I, I won't go into the detail because it's all a little bit what's the word proprietary information but there was one particular part of the refinery that's got three or four components to it that we were we did a lot of thinking around where actually does the bottleneck lie within all of this and we aligned we we we, we aligned on it in the end we agreed that this particular part was the the bottleneck and around that was we put um overall equipment effectiveness as a measure of the the, mm. the the utilization and the quality of the output from the bottleneck and there was so much work done on improving the reliability and improving the quality of the output uh, it became a real focal point for for the whole continuous improvement process for the refinery really and in doing so if you if your bottleneck runs smoothly the whole place tends to run a lot smoother generally then and frustration evaporates amongst the, the guys that are continually fixing repetitive problems yeah, yeah that that sort of uh, it was a lot of side benefits that came from it as well i would say i love that there's a guy i forget who the author was but it's called the goal and he talks about yeah. i think it's similar he went to japan i think he even who went to japan too but i'm not i might have that wrong we talked about factory yeah. and manufacturing processes and that essentially focusing on anything other than the bottlenecks is a waste of your time. If it's not a it bottleneck, is. it's running good enough right now. And you got to yeah, just... This applies, this applies everywhere. Mining and, and mineral processing are not industries that you'd traditionally associate with lean or continuous improvement or right. whatever you want to call it. But it's as equally applicable uh, in those environments as it is on a widget, ma widget manufacturing. Right. You know? Now you said the mining was... Is cyclical. Can you speak to that? What do you mean it's cyclical? And what yeah, are the cycles? I, I, 
by that, I simply mean that in nickel, for instance, you get periods when the price is high and everyone's happy and shareholders are making lots of money and there's enough money be, profit being retained so that it can be reinvested in, in assets. And, and in mining, it's incredibly capital intensive. So building new mines is extraordinarily expensive and, and time consuming. Even uh, maintaining mines infrastructure is incredibly expensive as well mm-hmm. you, you tend to find that the refineries downstream really they tend to get the sort of they're not priority number one when it comes to allocation of capital at the best of times <laughs> but when you're going through a down cycle where there's the, the profits are down or there aren't any profits at all you're even less of a priority then yeah that's kind of for people that don't know because maybe they grew up in a city maybe they're just really detached from it. how does someone owning land that they think has mineral deposits on it Turn into an iPhone. Can you walk through? Like, where is the refinery in the process? So really, it's around exploration. Is whether it's a a large mining company or whether it's a junior mining company, exploration. So you drill holes and hopefully you find, yeah, boreholes. They can go down. (laughs) They can. You're experts. Yeah, they can go down hundreds of feet, or even I don't even know how deep they can go. Go down a mile. Go down a mile. Yeah. So you can find hopefully a not only in in the case of the company that I worked for, nickel, but things like copper and precious metals and cobalt and other things. And if you don't, you okay, you move along a few hundred feet and you drill somewhere else until eventually, hopefully, in these days, again, Daryl, you're more of an expert than I am, but flying airplanes over to capture geomagnetic data gives people more of an inkling with, with certain um, minerals as to where the hotspots might be. So here's a clue. If area uh, X is glowing green on your geomagnetic uh, images, you tend to maybe... Um, focus on those areas ultimately um it's about drilling enough areas to um justify um if you have a, a mineral um reserve there basically uh which uh are a certain grade of of whatever yeah. metals you're talking about and with, with certain tonnages the whole thing can be de- demonstrated to be to be economically viable for mining that's a very <laughs> as you can anybody listening to this podcast who comes from mining or geological or exploration background will pick holes in what I've said. Uh, that's fine. No, think- you did you did pretty good. I'll, I'll fill in some gaps. Like for us, we worked with the UTEM system, which Yves Lamontang, who passed away a couple of years ago, rest in peace, he won the Lifetime Achievement Award for his work with the UTEM system. And for them, they were the best in the world at what they did. And it would be, you would survey a plot. So lumberjacks would cut lines, just like straight lines in the piece of land. And you would walk through with the UTEM system. And depending on how detailed of a reading the company was paying for, you'd take a reading every whatever, 50 meters, 100 meters, 200 meters, depending on how detailed it was. And they would, you basically, I remember when I was a kid, I have an 80 pound backpack of copper wire, like a spool, like a spool threaded, a spool of thread string on your back. And you would just have to walk and you'd have your GPS and compass and it's just go. And you'd have to just, if it's a cliff, if it's a lake, whatever, you just go, like just go. And you have to lay that copper wire and you do a mile by a mile square and you would hook it up to a generator and put a current through it. And this wire is laying on the ground and that's conducting through the earth. And then they would do, like you mentioned, the borehole. They do that to take up a soil sample, a core sample, and take a look at what's in the ground here. And then by reading the rate of decay of the electricity through the earth on this massive plot of land and analyzing what's in there, they can actually predict and figure out where the best areas to go are based off how conductive everything is. So because I did that work and because my the man who raised me worked in that for 40 years, I can actually never own a, a mine. I had to sign all sorts of disclosures. But that's 
that's a real short summary of how like surface surveying goes. There's lots of different ways people do it. Some of it is junk science. A lot of it is junk science, but that's essentially bare bones. And like you said, like the readings, you're in the airplane, you're getting readings, all just a lightning, not a lightning rod, those like water dowels trying to lead you yeah. in the minerals, right? <laughs> yeah. So now we've I got some mine. We have a deposit. What next? You bring in the big machine. I, 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 yeah. I always found those exploration guys always the most optimistic guys in the world as well. But that was, it seems to go with the territory. I was alone in the woods all day. It's fun. It was great. I got paid to hike and just be out in the wilderness. And I learned, I studied Japanese while I did it. It paid very well as oh, well. Wow. That was, it was, it's yeah, hard yeah. work. It's physical labor. It's effing dangerous. I remember one day my day started. I just, I had, I don't even know I, how to guess the feet. It was like 300 feet up and it was just pure cliff. And so that pack was as heavy as it gets. Oh. Like, there you go. There you go. And I'm like, you got to be effing kidding me. But there's also wonderful things. I just feel like I touched pieces of the woods that I don't think any human had ever. Why would a human have been through there? Like, I just think it's just untouched, pristine. Like we would drive the truck as far as the road went, get off, unload the snowmobiles or the four wheelers. And then we would drive those in for a half hour. And then you would, that's where you, they would start. And then you would hike into that. And so it was anyways, good, fun, fun memories. I digress. I want to just, I want to give no, you a no. view of the process. Yeah, once you've identified the reserve or the, the, the quantity of reserve and resource, that's, I shouldn't say that's the easy bit because that, that that's difficult enough. But right. then beyond that, if you're a large mining company, you've got, you've got to decide whether you employ the typically hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in capital then to develop that into a mine or not. And it's even more difficult if you're a junior exploration company where you don't have, you've got to raise it through equity, through debt and strategic investors and all that kind of stuff. Ultimately, a mine, whether it's open cast or underground, would be constructed. And beyond that, then you, you obviously you bring the metals to the surface in sulfide operations like we're talking about in that nickel is associated with in Canada. You have smelters, you have, sorry, you have crushers, mills, I should say, smelters, concentrators. And ultimately, you end up with, with a much higher concentration of, again, referring to nickel in concentrate, which is basically a pile of crushed rock with nickel in it, up to, say, 30, 40, 50%, uh, which can then be either further concentrated or, or refined. And ultimately, then, in its pure refined form, Nickel can be sold to a whole range of applications. You spoke about electronics, iPhone. There's nickel used in certain parts of the iPhone, but stainless steel is, I think, two-thirds of the nickel market is stainless steel. The growing EV revolution, obviously, nickel is heavily associated with the batteries for that. High nickel alloys, aerospace applications, catalysts. The list goes on, all sorts of weird and wonderful things, piston rings that you wouldn't really associate them. You wouldn't ask yourself what's actually in those alloys. Right. But yeah, nickel's got a whole range of applications across various industrial sectors. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the refinery is like the last stop, it sounds like, before it goes to be turned into... Yeah. Something. And there's more ways. Again, uh, we used a carbonyl refinery at the refinery uh, in the UK, but in the I, I should have gone on and told you that I ended up managing not only the UK refineries that Valley owned, but I also owned, I also managed nickel refineries in China, yeah. Japan and Taiwan. That was my last gig with Valley, actually. There was actually a precious metals refinery in, in, in London that Valley owned, particularly the main precious metals that they refined were um, platinum and hmm. palladium. And, and also in Asia, I ran, in China, we had um, um, a smelter. So it, there was a, a pyrometallurgical process for extracting nickel in China. Um, in, in Taiwan, similar, another smelter. 
And in Japan, we had um, a fluidized bed roaster um, followed by a reduction roaster producing a, another form of 1995%, I think it was, pure nickel. And these were stainless steel, less pure, suitable for stainless steel applications. So, yeah, so there's more than one way to turn, to refine uh, an impure form of nickel into a saleable form then. So obviously running it out, you know, like I said, it's a very expensive labor intensive thing to dig stuff out of the ground and crush it down as much as everyone's like AI, all the, the AI ain't doing nothing for that right now. It's still just no, very, it's a... yeah, it's a, a very brute force sort of thing. And to a certain extent, as much as we put as much science behind it as we can for maximum leverage, but obviously that's where, like you say, operational efficiency is so important. I actually lived with a guy for two weeks when I was in, I was a kid, I was 17. I was billeting in the Smilkamine Valley. And he was an operate an efficiencies consultant for mines. And he was talking about just shaving like a guy in the dump truck or the whatever, the the cat, just cutting three three steps out of his routine every day could equal oh, yeah. a million dollars in savings in a year and fuel and operate and all this excellence. It's incredibly impactful. Exactly. Exactly. This is just human endeavor, really, to make their own activities more efficient. And it all adds up over time, especially in these these environments like you you just described. Yeah. For a lot of people, they don't even think it like, and just to put this into, for the business owners listening, if you have a 15% improvement in leads, lead, like lead generation, and you have a 15% improvement in lead qualification, and you have a 15% improvement in your lead to sales close ratio, and you have a 15% improvement in turning first time buyers into repeat buyers, that is not linear. It's not 15 plus 15 plus, it's exponential. It is exponential. Like I think, and I might, my math may, may be wrong, forgive me, but it's like in the thousands of percent of improvement because you're fixing all these bottlenecks and everything imp- impacts the next one. Like I've literally doubled business. I've doubled a business before because they had a functional business. They were driving a ton of, and I mostly work in a lot. I often work, I shouldn't say mostly, but I often work, the majority of my work is online businesses. They had a ton of traffic to their website. Their product service was the same. But all I did was I improved the web experience for people back when I was just only doing that kind of stuff. And by doubling the number of quotes generated or the numbers of leads that fill in the form, I had a friend, he said this, he was selling, he's actually one of my closest friends. He has a company called hereandplay.com. He's been doing it for 20 years, teaching people how to play music online. And when he first started early days, of the internet before Amazon was even a thing, he was selling like his workbook online. And he read this book about optimizing the web page thing. And all he did was move some things around on his page. And he went from selling 15 workbooks a month. And he was a kid in university at the time. So just beer money. He went from selling 15 a month to five a day. And the issue was the user in it, right? It was such an inefficient process. It was just a disconnected workflow process. So For you, when it comes to operational excellence, what sort of skills and behaviors do you think are important to improve or develop? I think it starts with, with, I think everyone's different, right? I I just think that it's for management to to ensure that, as I said to you, understand what what we need to do to be successful and to really train people in those specific areas. We we made a big play towards uh, developing problem-solving skills, um, for one, which isn't something that's like inherently part of everyone's kind of makeup when they're born. But I think that, I think there are things that you can do to help people along to do their daily jobs. Some people have got these skills already, but not everybody. Uh, I think also behavior. It's really important 
that was another part of the the work was to really align on how we would behave to each other. Be a fir- I'm a firm believer that nobody comes to work every day to do a lousy job, but it's quite easy to, to work in a, in, a, in an environment where there's a blame culture where that almost assumes yeah. that people are there to screw things up. Like it was really important for us to get that message across that nobody in this organization will point fingers at anybody else if anything goes wrong. Because if, if something goes wrong, it's usually because the procedure was wrong, the system was wrong, or the incoming goods were wrong. But to say, to, to have a culture where by default, we're looking for scapegoats. That was, it's a really toxic culture. And it really, it really dissuades people from giving voluntary discretionary effort, I should say, because they were the last time I did, the last time I tried doing something different or the last time I tried to to improve stuff, I got blamed when it went wrong. That's that's the end of that's the end of their involvement. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's really important that we encourage people and learn from the things that go wrong, learn from mistakes, learn from deviations from plan, and put plans in place and put systems in place to ensure that they don't happen again. Well, that's really what where we came from. Are there any operational habits that you feel are Oh, yeah. Again, man, leader standard work is really important. If, it's quite easy for management to say, I'm too busy, I've got meetings, blah, blah, blah. But really, it was around, we would ensure that the whole management team would be present and visible through certain periods of, of the week. That was almost scheduled. Sometimes it was ad hoc, but quite, we'd ensure that at a minimum, there'd be a certain amount of conversations taking place between management, safety inspections, and just general walkabouts. They were programmed in. Meetings to discuss. We we held regular meetings to discuss how, how how the whole behavioral culture change was going. We ensured that was part of our standard work as well. Everything that was important, we ensured that we built into management management schedules, and and therefore they became habits. Mm, so, it sounds a bit regimental, but actually, no, but that's when how you want it's a process. It, it's not a, it's a yeah, process. Yeah, exactly. Success is a pro. It's not a one time event. You don't. Nobody wakes up and goes and wins. They're like, oh, I'm going to go do this day in their exceptional. Exactly. You have great days and bad days, but success is about stacking 1% improvement every day and just beating on that, doing it until it becomes dull and then continuing to go until it's beautiful. And I think that's a great, I think that's a great lesson. Focus on the process and optimizing the process, having a exactly. standardized process, having a clear accountability in place, clear accountability clear processes, everybody down to the individual knows the KPI that they need to improve to contribute to the overall goal of the company. I think that's fantastic. I think that's fantastic. Now we're- Yeah, oh, it, it, it sounds sounds simple as you explained it. And it isn't rocket science, but there's an enormous amount of management, not just management effort, certainly a lot of my effort, I remember. A huge amount of effort and commitment goes into it over multi-years for it to truly become- ingrained and successful i would say yes that i love like grit and i just love those like grit and perseverance like the man in the arena i just i love that stuff i have no i i'm gonna stop compared to some some of the guys you interview on your podcast i don't know well like Uh, i should imagine this is quite sort of a little bit out to one side compared to some of the conversations that you have no, I, I think this is, but this is based in found. This is, this is the salt of the earth, the, the building blocks of excellence. It's not some shiny, fancy new trick. It oh, is yeah. the fundamentals done incredibly. Exactly. Someone's got to make it, right? These cars driving around, they don't just kind of click your fingers and some AI program like right. makes them. Right, it's, there's right. a lot of the, the whole raw material thing behind it. Um, these days, it, it's a, it's 
highly in focus subject mining, but I'm a strong believer that mining should be environmentally excellent. The emissions should net zero really is what all miners should be aiming for. We should be doing away with 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 these really energy intensive ways of getting material out of the ground. But nonetheless, someone's got to do it successfully. Otherwise, where are we going to go? I agree. So there's a couple, I know, or I want to be respectful of your time, but I just said a couple of things I really want to talk about. So one is, I'm not even sure net zero is supposed to be the goal because it's not even, there's a lot of debate and I even spoke, spoken to university researchers. They're like, I don't know if carbon is a problem. Now, is there a problem with like deforestation and the oceans are full of plastic and we have landfills that are a hundred percent. I would never in my life think of denying any of that impact. What I'm saying is like talked about before is making sure that we're focused on the right KPI and everything a human does from burping, farting, flipping a light switch, all that creates carbon. And so carbon zero is a weird term. And I think I know people understand the idea of trying to have almost like a perpetual energy machine where we don't generate any waste because we recycle everything. And that's, let's go that way. But even in an environment where we're using clean energy and we're not polluting, we're still in the system. I still need to eat food. There's going to be waste product from that food that goes somewhere. The place that processes that has to exist somewhere. So some of it is pure displacement and... That was the one yeah. thing I wanted to say. I was getting a little bit carried away, maybe. I, I, you mentioned oh, no, at the I very agree. beginning. Uh, I'm, I'm on the board with um, <clears throat> Canada Nickel Company, and they've just had, they just had their BFS published actually last week. But the, the the tailings there adsorb carbon dioxide. They've proven as part of that study that I think they can consume 30 tons of CO2 per ton of nickel produced purely by the the, the fixation of CO2 into the tailings. But I, I, of course, not everyone's got that on their kind of uh, on their flow sheet, right? As part, right, right. <laughs> just so happens that, uh, but I guess the point is over in, particularly Indonesia, you've got really cap energy intensive processes. Some of them are, some are less, but the really energy intensive stuff. I think we should be looking to, how can I say this? Yeah, no, I just, 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 mine, just, mine, just mine our metals in a more responsible manner generally, I guess, is the spirit of what I was trying to say. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to add to that was an interesting just food for thought, because this could be a huge, you talk about how capital intensive it is that to start and maintain a mine. And one just, again, like you're digging into the earth and the earth is constantly moving and changing. As well, although you think your house stands still, everything is constantly moving and changing and in flux yeah. and seasons. Talk about Canada, I was up there like, snow water freezes and expands and melts and things shrink so it's very labor intensive buckminster fuller was a revolutionary in the 50s i think it was and he was talking about part of what you might call net zero or sustainable civilization is one that also can recycle we've produced so much already with materials the landfills are full if we found a way to process that stuff and refine it from there we wouldn't we could just start mining our garbage heaps essentially and get a lot of the stuff that we need, but we don't have the technology and there's not necessarily a lot of the interest. A lot of people just want to get to money fast. They don't want to, the pioneers get the arrows, the settlers get the land. And right now we we know how to mine out of the earth. We don't know how to mine our landfills yet. And so that's the, you yeah. know, the challenge, but it's an opportunity for Absolutely. any young entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I give a bit of a plug to, to Canada Nickel there. I think it's a great, a great company, great leadership. Mark Selby, CEO. I should also, I work for West Wind Elements and we're looking at building the USA's first nickel refinery in actually building a pilot plant in Oklahoma now. And again, it's great to work with that team because they're similarly positive, positively minded, extremely dynamic, 
with a clear vision of where they want to go. And Katie Long, the CEO, was where I shows. I just enjoy working with people that show that enthusiasm and that respect for people and great leadership as well. Yeah. Yeah. I should I should mention those guys. That's fantastic. Now, Mike, I again I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? I don't know. We covered some ground. I, I hope I give you a flavor of of, of where my journey. Yep. Uh, over the years. It's been like, I'd say 30 years. It's more like yeah, 35 now. But it's great to be involved with with these with, with the projects I just mentioned, really. Yep. I, I really think I've got, I think we can build something pretty spectacular in the US. And it's really exciting to be part of turning the Timmins district in Northern Ontario into into a new a new centre of, of nickel mining, really, yep. for the future. Something that can rival Sudbury in the medium term. <laughs> so it's great to be part of those things. Yeah. Sudbury pride. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you, in the you, future. You, oh, sorry. Are you from Sudbury? Are you from Sudbury? I'm no, I grew up in Kingston, Ontario, but I I worked oh, in right. Chelsea yeah. just outside Sudbury for I think it was yeah. like four months, five months doing the four right. before I went to Japan. That's how I raised the money to go to Japan for I, I worked I got through personal connections, I got hooked up with a job and was working 16 hour plus days and actually going to the boxing club at night. And it was just you just make money the whole time you're up at camp every day, but you're working every day you're up at camp. But it's mm. fun because you're alone in the woods with your buddies with a bunch of four wheelers and, you know, and snowmobiles and, and just having fun in the woods. You still, you know, got to make reasonable progress in, in, in uh, reasonable time. But it's not nothing. Some camps, I've heard horror stories. Some camps, everyone's just getting drunk and whatever. And it's just, a, you know, it's a, it's not sustainable. Yeah. We got our work done. It was fine. But what a life experience too. And you learn that when you're in the middle of the woods, this is, Probably one of the most important life lessons I got when you're in the middle of the woods and they'd have to take someone four hours to get back to society, then get a helicopter to come get you. You know what I mean? Like you become very self-sufficient, very fast. Like you make a wrong step. You like, you, you just have a different appreciation. I feel like it gave me a lens of the world that I look through where I understand mm -hmm. that there's like sunglasses society wears, and then there's the, the nat 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 natural law and that sort of thing to a certain extent. Anyway. Mike, yeah. if people want to reach out, if they have questions, if they want to ask more, where should they get in touch? What are the best places? I'm trying to think. <laughs> you, you put me on a spot. Oh, Can you stop that then? Yeah. Is LinkedIn? Is LinkedIn an okay place to reach out? Yeah. Yeah. Can you ask that question again? Or... Sure. We're good. Yeah. What, Mike, yeah. what are some great places to reach out and get in touch? Uh, yeah. You can check me out on my, my LinkedIn profile. That'll be the, the best way, I think. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So for those that are interested, go look up Mike. Cox, C-O-X, I got the right one. If he's, he's the chief operations officer at Westwind Elements, went to MIT Sloan School of Management. If you have a question about operations and efficiency, that sort of thing, he's a very approachable guy. Give him a, a hello. Mike, thank you so much for joining and sharing your story. I think this is an exciting field. I think this is really in its early stages. In the future will be mining potentially asteroids and other planets. And I just think it's an exciting field, an exciting time. And I'm very grateful for you coming and sharing your story with myself and my audience. Thank you so much. Thank you, Daryl. My pleasure.